Let's open in prayer this morning before we open His Word. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before Your throne and Your presence this morning, recognizing that the veil that separated the average man, the commoner from the holy presence of an Almighty God, has been torn from top to bottom by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I pray that as we approach Your holy, infallible Word this morning, recognizing that the way is paved for us to boldly approach the throne of grace, that we would do so with humility and with fear, recognizing that it is your word, that it is your ways, your works, your person, your character, your qualities, your worth, your works and your attributes, that alone, that alone will endure. We are nothing, Father, unless you take the wickedness, the decrepit, depraved state of our heart, and do regenerative work, raising us up, Lord, from the miry clay, resurrecting us from the death of sin, and setting our feet, Lord, our spirit and our mind upon the foundation of our rock, Jesus Christ. Lord, there is nothing in the ability of the servant bringing this message or the ability of the ears to hear that will make this word, Lord, effective to the hearer, But if you take this time, Lord, and anoint the giving and anoint the hearing, these words can have a healing, encouraging, sanctifying effect beyond what we could ask or imagine. So I pray that you would till up the fertile soil, the soil of our hearts, God, and make it fertile. Make it fertile for the seed of the word to produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. And when it does, I pray that we would soon give glory to you as evidence of your spirit, follows even the giving of this message. Jesus, it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. What a privilege to be with you this morning and to share in God's word together. I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 12. We've been studying the Psalms and we've given our second Sunday each month to going through the Psalms systematically and this will be A year of doing so, it leads us to Psalm chapter 12. These Psalms, as David writes them in the beginning, you can sense an undercurrent of pressure, of stress, of a lot of persecution that he himself went went through. The Psalms are an incredible catalog of worship for us. As you think about the songs you sang even this morning before this preaching time, most of them probably had a joyful overtone to them or a sense of God's authority and soon coming triumph, or remembering the work of Christ. There's language in the Psalms that moves beyond or has a more comprehensive feel to it emotionally. That is, in the Psalms, we find an answer to every life situation and every emotional situation, be it trial, hardship, or celebration and triumph. The Psalms give us language to talk to our God. A language that sometimes is is minimized today or marginalized. And we think of worship as a very narrow scope of what we ought to offer to God or the times in our lives that are worthy of worship. But the Psalms give us an incredible, comprehensive catalog of answering language. And this Psalm today gives us language that we can bring to God when we see the culture around us totally rife with error where there are messages, ideas, 
uh, purported, brought forth with the forms of the day, the opinions, the articles, the news headlines, uh, things that men say all around, common philosophy, worldviews of the day, when virtually all of them are godless. The title of this morning's message is The Last Word. As we move through the structure of this psalm, I've chosen three points to form the body of this message. And over those three points would be this heading, three categories of speech. There are three parties that speak out of Psalm 12 as David writes this psalm and structures this beautiful piece of poetry. The first party is wicked man. We see how wicked man is prone to speak, prone to express himself. Secondly, we see how the words of the needy and the poor sound in the ears of God and in the ears of men. And then thirdly, the glorious contrast between the words of any man, be he poor, needy, recognizing his state of dependence on God, or the man who is wicked and has set his face in rebellion against the Lordship of Christ, in glorious contrast to every word of man, the preeminent, infallible, powerful, enduring, effectual word of God. By way of introduction, before we explore those points a little further, I'd like to bring to your attention that Psalm 12 is a critique, an ancient one, a critique of humanism, and not, but ju- not just a critique, but also a refutation. Read, if you will, with me these eight verses, beginning in verse 1. David writes, Save, O Lord. For the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. The tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered. Because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children. Of men. As I said, it occurs to me as I read here that David's insight as to the culture and the character of the words around him in many ways is far more advanced than the average critique and refutation of the insight and insight of the culture around us as viewed through the eyes of the pundits, the commentators, the news anchors, and the thinkers and editorial boards. Of our day. This psalm is a critique, a refutation, and an utter rejection of the grounds of humanism. And I would venture to propose that it does not speak well of us today, that these words were written thousands of years ago and they are still so needful and ring so relevant and true in our ears this morning. By virtue of this psalm's very existence, it proves that we are more fools, that we are greater fools than we may have thought. That is to say, 
if after thousands of years of recorded human history, of kingdoms rising, kingdoms falling, nations orienting themselves around the thoughts and ideas of men, and then experiencing the consequences of their bankrupt philosophies and error and worldview. These kingdoms come, they go. We had the kingdoms, even prior to David writing, who had decided they would get together and unify around the power of man and build the Tower of Babel. Babel arises into the sky, and just a short time later, their plans are confused. The table of nations is instituted as God sends people groups all over the face of the earth as judgment. People people groups with separate languages that exist in some form to this day. People groups whose very existence shows that God is to be praised, lauded, and to be seated as the chief ruler of all the earth. Not just that kingdom, but we'll read or talk a bit about the kingdom of Babylon later in this message By way of illustration, once again, the kings were inspired and influenced by their power to build and their power to propose to build a civilization that they thought would be absolutely untouchable by the forces of that day. Not so. God brought the kings to nothing. God used these wicked men, these wicked kingdoms at different times to bring judgment on other nations that need it, but themselves, they themselves were judged in due course. At the close of the Bible, the Roman Empire had perhaps more influence than any prior empire in history. Yet as the few thousand barbarians looted, pillaged, and whittled away at the edges of this glorious edifice to man's power and thinking, man is the center of all things as it, after all, according to the thinkers of ancient Greece who laid the foundations for that godless regime. The barbarians whittled away at the edges and the stone, the marble of the Colosseums and temples began to be pilfered and set up as fence posts for the agricultural endeavors of the barbarians of that day. The people had no will to fight anymore. Drunk on bread and circuses, that entire nation and world empire was destroyed. All because the leaders of that day did not heed the ancient words the critique and refutation of humanism that was available for them in this psalm itself and throughout the word of God from cover to cover. It is proof, I would say, of sin itself that we still need to hear these words today. It's proof of sin itself that we would continue to indulge the notion, indulge the futility of faith in humanity so many thousands of years later after David wrote, these inspired words. Notice, if you will, that David was no stranger to human nature. He saw it in himself, and he saw it in others. He saw it in the world around, and it didn't matter if it was a king or a pauper. He threw everyone into the same category as we begin to see this in verse 1. David writes, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. David closes the psalm with verse 8 on every side the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted again among the children of man. Three categories of speech. These three categories are reflected in the structure and the poetic devices of this psalm, but category number one, I've just labeled the words of wicked man. 
the words of the children of man, the words of man who is constantly and incessantly deceived by the humanistic notion that he can be as God. The characterization of this kind of evil is seen in David's comprehensive label, the children of man. David categorically associates sin and the notion of words and phrases of propositions, of worldview, of opinions that man puts forth. And he says it's categorically sinful. All of mankind is implicated. David himself knows that original sin has affected him. He has said in another place that in sin, my, I was conceived in the very womb. He is acutely aware of his own wayward tendencies. He has received at a later time a message from the prophet that says, You, O king, are the guilty one. David knew later when he was in a seat of authority, not here as he was likely running as a fugitive, that he was just susceptible, susceptible, if not more so, to error, to sin, and to vice. The characterization of this kind of evil is well stated in Verse 1, when he says, the faithful have vanished from the children of man, and then restates at the end, vileness is exalted among the children of man. A categorical rejection of mankind as evil. Every child ever born to man, save one, is susceptible to the kind of error that is revealed to us in this psalm. Secondly, under the words of wicked man, we see not just the characterization of evil, that is, who is associated with the error that this psalm reveals, but secondly, a description of wicked speech. We see here in verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. In verse 4, he goes on and he says, those who say with their tongues we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. The description of this wicked speech is stated repeatedly in this psalm. First, David uses the term utters lies. Then he says, flattering lips. He goes on to say with a double heart and later great boasts. You see here as David repeats different phrases that are similar in meaning, that the structure of this psalm reflects the character of the speech of the children of men who are thoroughly humanistic, wicked and evil they say things over and over again they make propaganda films they put forward their opinions as if they if they say them enough they will pathologically believe them themselves or convince the world around that they are correct and there is no higher standard to which they must bow everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips with a double heart they speak he goes on with with their tongues With our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? And you see even the poetic devices employed in this Hebraic poetry here remind us or teach us the kind of speech, reflect the character of the speech of the different parties. For the wicked, it's a constant, incessant cacophony of error. It's all around. It's all consuming. It's the loudest voice. It commands the most attention. Everywhere you turn in our culture, it seems similar to the language in the psalm. Indeed, identical, and in some ways even more so. 
We think of ourselves as so far removed from the ancient, archaic thinking of old, but it's only hubris. It's only pride. What have we done with our advancing technology now that we can broadcast ourselves over television and radio waves and numerous outlets and communication devices? What have we done? What have we said? How have we used those mediums to transfer information and to put forth opinions, to advance ourselves, to promote different agendas? Has our morality increased with our technology? No, of course it hasn't. Instead, the magazine covers, the editorial pages, the cover stories, the headlines, the pundits, the commentators, the talk shows, they all exist for the same reason that speech and the ability to express ourselves and themselves existed in David's day. All of these things, the vast majority of them, are employed to utter lies to neighbors, to speak with flattering lips, to indulge double-heartedness, duplicity, error, hypocrisy, to put forward the notion that if we can think for ourselves, then we are God. If we can express ourselves, then that is all the confidence we need to put forth whatever we want to hear. And then just in the very act of saying it, as if we were God, pretend that it's true. This is utterly false. And upon further analysis, in spite of our technology, we must return to the words of tried and true Scripture and realize that what we say, if it does not reflect the Word of God, if it is not an application derived from His truth, if the bedrock foundation is not laid on what God says is holy, just, and pure, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy, it is nothing but lies, flattery, and duplicitous speech. When David speaks of lies, it's obvious what he says, what he means there. We're all familiar with lies. But he goes on to describe more specifically flattering lips. How many flattering lips are babbling even now as we're speaking here this message this morning? How many people are sounding positive on the surface? But if you had the vantage point of God and could see the intentions of their heart, what sounds positive on the outside has a self-serving motive within. You see, compliments are a dime a dozen in our culture. People are propped up all over the place. Celebrity is something of uh, our culture that is inescapable. you, You can't help but notice it. There's fame, there's fortune to be apprehended, to be gained. There are people that you could align yourselves with that if you help them out a little bit, they'll prop you up. There's plastic smiles. There's uh, handshakes. There's uh, you know people talking to one another, encouraging one another. But underneath all of this, is it the pure words of God and is it His glory that is ultimately sought? Do we seek to really encourage one another to elevate them in their spiritual walk? To glorify God in saying with our words and our speech, that we're really affirming something that God has sovereignly placed on the inside? Or is it just flattery, affirming something that they have achieved in their own strength? Are we reinforcing pride or are we reinforcing humility? Are we doing it for our own purposes and ends or are we doing it to champion God's glory? 
Are we redeeming our original created purpose to fellowship with and reflect the creative power and glory of our God so that all we do serves to point toward Him? Or are we doing the exact opposite and following the promise of Lucifer that we can exchange our glory for God's and all we say and do is pointing to ourselves, pointing somewhere else, pointing to people who have set themselves in God's stead and a culture that has built itself on a sandy foundation that will utterly be destroyed if it does not repent. What is the kind of speech that we indulge? Is it flattery? Is it duplicity? Is it the double-hearted mind of man that puts forth an image to his worldly friends here and then an image to his Christian friends there so he can be accepted in virtually any circle? Is it the double heart of a politician who would go around and give a lot of red meat, as it were, to his base and sound very principled on the campaign trail, but then when he's rubbing elbows with the establishment in Washington, he leaves those principles behind? Is it the kind of duplicity that leaders use today as just, or describe today as just playing the game? This is how it's done. You have to say certain things in certain forums. But when you get to a certain point in your, posi- of, in your position of leadership, be it ministry, politics, or otherwise, the, the fine art of compromise is really what advances your position. Flattery, duplicity, lies, all of this serving self. This is the description of the wicked speech that David gives as he begins to unfold in his song by his great discernment what he sees in the culture around him that in that day. And it's striking the similarity, the principled essence that we see in our world today exactly the same as it was in David's. Under this first heading that I've given you, the words of wicked men, we've seen the characterization of evil. All men are indicted. It's all the children of men under David's accusation here, under David's revelation of sin that he reveals in the psalm. Secondly, the description of wicked speech is very specific. And then thirdly, there's a sample quotation that David gives in verse 4. Those who say, quote, with our tongues we will prevail. With our lips are with us. Who is master over us? David gives a sample quotation of what it sounds like and what the attitude of the speech of his day was. He says again, with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? It's a very interesting quotation. It's as if David knows that that man, by virtue of his very ability to campaign, to deceive, to communicate, to convince, and to declare. This ability incestuously feeds his sinful confidence, his sinful defiance against God. The Bible says that the tongue is like a rudder, a a small device in proportion to the body, but it steers the body, the intent of your whole being, in whatever direction your heart chooses. The tongue in that way is powerful is powerfully destructive. The tongue is evidence evidence 
of what is in the heart. The Bible also says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The lips and the tongue are two symbols of what on the inside is revealed on the outside as we take speech and we process it through the word of God using the spirit's discernment to see if we are headed in a good or a wrong direction. The tongue is not only powerful to steer us into evil, but we think of it as powerful and we are deceived as to its power in ourselves. We think just because we have the idea to put forth words that those words themselves are true. There is only one power in the universe whose every word is true. And this is our God. In contrast to the flattery, empty, baseless, duplicitous, lying words of man, the word of God is later referred to as absolutely pure. A kind of purity that is characterized in this psalm poetically by the precious metals that are passed through the fire multiple times until only the pure essence of that element remains. There is only one tongue in all the universe that is totally incorrupted, and it is the word of our God. Every word that he speaks will never return void. Every word that he spoke at creation had indeed creative power. God cannot lie. He will never be proven false. His every word will return to him exactly as he intends. This is the true power of true speech. Man has no power to create through his own words. We only have the ability to destroy. We indict ourselves if we pretend that we have the ability to establish something merely because we can communicate it. However, in our sin, because we can say things, because we can present ourselves in numerous ways, even in our dress, in our speech, in our character, our demeanor, in our air, in our attitude, in the things that we write, our biographies, our autobiographies, our blog postings, our Facebook pages, all over society, all these means and methods of expressing ourselves, if we don't hold ourselves accountable to Scripture and meditate on its truths and precepts more, then we are preoccupied to advance ourselves, to project ourselves and express ourselves, our very ability to speak, our very ability to blog and to post, and to get ourselves out there and to advertise and express who we are on the inside, will itself incestuously, incestuously feed our own sin nature that lies to us that we are as God. As long as we can talk and present a good face to others, should we be confident in our position? Or should we let the sword of the word of God do corrective surgery and cut to the heart and separate those things that are lying, flattering, duplicitous, boasting from the essence of what we ought to be? A humble, repentant, with knees bowed, hands lifted, eyes closed, mind attentive to the word of God, humble human being, realizing the horrible depths of our own sinful depravity as every child of man has sinned in Adam and confessing that sin and asking that the pure, holy, righteous word of God repair us from the inside out. 
so that as we begin to project and express ourselves now, that we would be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, expressing the Lord and His truth, living for His glory instead of just advancing our own. We begin to see the contrast further developed in this psalm between the way man speaks and the way culture presents itself and the order of our day and David's day. We begin to see this further as we read. And the second category of speech is the words of the needy and the poor. This is a different party that is spoken of here. In contrast to the words of the wicked around, there's the words that are very minimal, a very small voice indeed from those who are suppressed by the world around, nevertheless crying out to God. In verse 5 we read, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Under the words of the needy and the poor, the characterization of the faithful in this psalm is very interesting. Who are the good guys? Who are the ones that don't trust themselves simply because they can speak? Who are the faithful? Who are the humble? Who are the ones in this Old Testament language that are the covenant people of God? Well, they're not the ones who have organized a successful lobby to speak on their behalf, who have the most eloquent speech, who heap up empty phrases, or who by their pious endeavors beseech the Almighty and to be seen of men fast, give and pray in such a way that proves that they, by virtue of their words alone, can accomplish anything from God. No, the faithful are those who are characterized in this psalm as needy and poor. Not just with minimal means in this life, like their possessions, their clothes, their shelter, their money, what have you. No, the kind of needy and poor that is spoken of later in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who are meek, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The kind of people that recognize their need. They search their inner being and with the light of Holy Scripture, declaring them guilty before the holiness of God, they know they are utterly dependent upon His regenerating power before they have any grounds on which to stand, lobby, or advocate. They know without a holy priest from God Himself that there is no mediator between God and man. That their every word is wicked, disgusting before the Lord. And their every attempt at holiness is nothing but filthy rags unless the Lord do a work. A work that would place within them something to offer to them. No, their words are far different than the case that is made incessantly and boastfully in culture to prove themselves. They have nothing to prove. They simply groan. They just groan because the poor and needy have grown. Because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I'm here to tell you with the authority of Scripture that we read here in Psalm 12 and also what we refer to in Matthew 5, that the tear, the hunger, the groan, the need, and the cry 
of the one who realizes his dependency speaks to heaven in loud tones. It's a siren that fills the ears of God who has the power to intervene. The groan of the needy is what heaven stands to attention and dispatches angels to address. The tear of the lowly, the one who admits that he is but a sinner, the broken man, the publican, the sinner, the prostitute, who cries out for the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. That rings like warning bells in the celestial realms and legions of angels are dispatched on the behalf of the poor and needy to intervene, to come to answer those prayers. It doesn't sound like anything impressive in the ears of man, but in the ears of God, it's a recognition that we are nothing without him. And we can only have hope if he would answer our prayer. This characterization of the faithful is one that you may not be used to and and may not feel so confident in offering. But if you are downtrodden today by the cares of life, and if you have in your own experience come to the end of your rope, know that it is the best place to be. Because the simple groaning and tearful cry of the needy heart that just admits we're a wicked sinner, that must have God, otherwise we have nothing, is powerful voice to advocate on their behalf. The inaudible groans, the tears, the hunger, the pain, the patience are sirens in the ears of heaven. They are the precursor to intervention. They are the sweet incense that rises to the nostrils of Almighty God. They are the acceptable sacrifice and offering in His sight. They are the words that will ultimately be heeded. The description of needy speech, as we see in this passage, is perhaps best characterized by the first three words of this psalm. David, as we feel his heart emoting through these words, just these eight verses, he opens with, just save, O Lord, save, O Lord. He goes on with his lament for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Save, O Lord. David evidences in the character, in the context of this psalm, the kind of quotation that characterizes the words of the needy and poor. I am nothing unless you intervene and unless you save me. In our day today, as we compare ourselves in light of Scripture, the words of the needy and the poor are often marginalized. They're put down and they're despised. Or the needy and the poor are taken advantage of by the duplicitous. There are many who will take on the plight of the poor just to advance their own agenda. There are those who have an ostensible compassion, but it is nothing but flattery. It is nothing but double-heartedness. And they're instead taking advantage of the poor, creating as other uh, societies have since the beginning of time, a disparity between the elite and the underprivileged. I'm here to tell you, I don't care what political party you hear it from in this election year, but you will virtually hear in every speech by every candidate somewhere, someplace, uh, wherever you go, a cry that I am the answer to society's problems. I really have the key. I will <coughs> extend to the needy a helping hand. I will, by, virtually, by virtue 
of my policies be able to finally help the poor and, and, and lift them up. But this is not true. The needy and the poor are instead taken advantage of today the same as they were then. Statistically, we have not helped the poor at all. Instead, we have stripped them of their very dignity. Today, when men advocate for certain entitlements and programs and handouts and things of this nature, they are not seeing men as objects of dignity in the eyes of God, equal in their equal in the essence of their rights and equal in the essence of what God sees them as, as image bearers of himself. No, men are seen as chattel today as they always have by the ruling elite who does not confess humbly that they must have God to be saved. Man is doing what he did during this time. He is taking advantage of the poor for his own ends. And in that way, he is trampling on the poor. He says he's for the middle class, for raising up the poor. But more often than not, he is there to encourage and to codify the disparity between the poor and the rich. Because then the poor are dependent on him. They vote for him. They put him in elected position. And in that way, he rules over them. He secures power. And he is able to lie to himself by taking advantage of the needy. That he is God. That he has the answers. Nevertheless, under the same pressures in that day as we have, or in the day of David as, as we have today, where it seems like the wicked are the only ones that have power to lobby or authority to enact certain things. And the voice of the poor is reduced to a groan, to a tear, to a cry, to a hunger. The Lord hears those. And God will intervene in due course and in His perfect time. Number three in this message, we've explored the words of wicked man. We've explored the words of the needy and the poor. And finally, we'll explore the words of, the, of God himself, the words of the Lord. In glorious contrast to what we've read so far and expounded on, in verse 6, David says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard this generation forever. This is a a description of the words of the Lord, and it's using poetic language. As I mentioned, the poetic nature of this psalm and the devices that are employed speak to the character of the words of each party. The poor are just a snippet, just a groan in the middle. The boastful, the proud, the wicked, the children of man are the incessant, the incessant recurring voice rehearsed over and over again. But the words of the Lord are described in a different way entirely. They are like the pure gold bullion, the pure silver product that has passed through the furnace seven times where the intention of that very purifying furnace is to get to the very essence and core, the true value, and to rely on that and nothing else. To not use by his deceitful and underhanded ways deception 
to advance his own agenda, but only to base his measures of value on what he absolutely knows is sound and pure. In this way, the analogy of the furnace describes the kind of heart and treasure and value that we should have and place on the words of God, as well as it describes the very character, quality, and precious value of God's words, Him themselves, their glory, their purity, their rarity. The characterization of the word of the Lord goes beyond this, however. It's not just that His words are glorious, pure, and rare, but they're also powerful, effectual, decisive, and timely. When God applies His word and decrees and ordains that my words now will intervene and act, they accomplish in just that split second exactly what they intend. Man keeps throwing up mud against the wall, hoping that it will stick. But God intervenes in His inscrutable wisdom at the perfect time and at the precise moment of His will. He speaks and it is done. This is seen in the heart cry of David and it's affirmed in his words as he writes in verse 3, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. The Lord's words go in toward the evil one, towards the wicked, the boasting, the prideful, those who utter lies, and they judge in a moment. They cut off those flattering lips, and they silence, pull out the tongue of the great boaster. The words of the Lord are effectual, and toward the wicked, they introduce, they enact swift and decisive judgment. Toward the needy, they are also effectual, because the poor are plundered in verse 5, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Later, as the psalmist cries out in verse 7, guard us, you will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. The words of the Lord are effectual. Toward the needy, they keep him, they guard him, and they rescue him. Even if the whole generation is corrupted, they intervene at the perfect time and they accomplish the promise that God has said he will always fulfill. For us in Christ, for David in faith, the promise is one that even if we die and all that is heard in this life from the ears of men is a cry or a whimper, or utter silence, no voice at all. God hears and God intervenes. And He will arise and His word is powerful enough to rescue us from this generation and bring us to heaven, to eternal life, to save us, to decisively remove us. The words of, the God, are, of God are powerful and effectual toward the needy to rescue and toward the wicked to judge. The description of God's Speech is pure, like the proven processes of metal, tested multiple times. In ages past, when men wanted to build a strong economy, they would do so on sound money. Uh, Over and again in history, you see that wars were won or lost, campaigns endured or crumbled, nations advanced economically or were destroyed 
based on the quality and character of their monetary system. If they had solid gold and the intention of those that retained and were in charge of the money supply was reflected by a verse like this, silver refined and his furnace on the ground purified seven times. That is, if they wanted to base their economy on true value, then they would highly value sound currency, money that was gold through and through. However, if there were flattering lips, if there was a double-hearted man who was making great boasts, and he wanted to advance his country in the short term, he would often do something like debauch the currency and paint over the coins with a thin layer of gold. And suddenly, he was rich. And suddenly, his kingdom was apparently successful. Suddenly, he had outsmarted God. He had said that, I decree by virtue of my very words and actions and laws, apart from God's, what is true. And I'm building for myself a kingdom. Well, kings who did this in the past, their foolishness was ultimately revealed. Henry VIII painted over coins with a thin layer of gold, but over time, he became known as Old Copper Nose, as the most prominent feature on that gold coin began to wear thin and the copper underneath was revealed. And here the word of the Lord appeared in that generation and called out that man, Henry VIII, that leader for what he was, a fool. He had not based his word on a pure and uh, in, on, on the purity and integrity that God commands. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Instead, he had... He had put aside all of God's laws. He had done something on the basis of the heart of this psalm with flattering lips and great boasts and with a double heart. He had enacted different policies. And in the end, he was proven foolish. This is the kind of juxtaposition we see in the psalm. This is the contrast between the double heart of man and the purity of God's words. This by way of analogy shows us the bankruptcy of humanism, and the pure, unadulterated authority and value of the kingdom of God. The sample quotation that David uses to give us the kind of quality and example of the word of the Lord is this quotation in verse 5. God says in the words of this poem, Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. I have a compilation here by Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers. As you read Spurgeon, you get the heart and intent of a man who truly saw that the word of God was the basis for the riches of his ministry and anything that he had to share Of this verse he writes, referring to the powerful nature of God's word, that when it is tested, it is always proven. He says this, The Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which cling to its alloy, which cling 
to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not a single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. The Bible, Spurgeon says, has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery. And every time it is tested, it is proven. And the only thing it loses is false interpretations of man that have been attached to it like false alloy to precious ore. Put the Bible to the test, O wicked man, today, and you approve yourself a fool. Raise up the notion of there is no God, of postmodern philosophy, of progressivism, of we can rule our own affairs, or the Bible and religion is nothing but an archaic relic of the past, and we will move forward in the boldness and the hubris and the audacity of the ancients who said, there is no God, I am Him. God's words are nothing but myth and theory. They're old, dusty words on the shelf of the religious who need a crutch to get through life. Go ahead, go ahead, pass the Word of God through that furnace again, and all you will lose is the human interpretations. But the gold bullion, the thousands of pages, the inarguable time-tested truth of God will remain. And in the end, you will be proven the copper-nosed fool. Go ahead through your different agencies, through your different means, through your different philosophies, through your different lines of code and legislation and powers that be and councils to no end. Go ahead through your policies and try to outsmart God. Go ahead, try to do it today. And you approve in the end as your economy crashes around you, as your nations fall apart, as you are utterly destroyed, as the foundations for all society are in flames that God is solid gold through and through and his word is the only basis of value and the only foundation on which strong societies can be made. Go ahead, try it again. You will only prove yourself a fool. One might ask, after so many thousands of years of recorded history, when will man finally learn that his humanistic endeavors are absolutely bankrupt, that they will prove him a fool time and again? Well, we haven't learned it at this point in history, and we haven't learned it since David wrote these wise and great words. The Word of God has been here all along, and we haven't learned it, and we will never learn until we repent. We will never learn until the Holy Spirit changes the wicked heart of man. We will die trying. This world will die trying to see themselves as God and to disregard the every word of the Lord and place in its stead himself. As we see through recorded history in the Bible and beyond, every time the word of God is tested, it is absolutely proven. Imagine if you were in Noah's day at the time when man was more corrupted to a greater degree than anything we have seen in some ways since, and just eight righteous people remain in all the world. And the patriarch of this family gets words from the Lord to build an ark, a boat that maybe of its kind has never seen an equal. Yet he's not lauded and championed for doing such a thing. For, for a century, perhaps, he works on this project where there is no water to speak of. And all the while, as I imagine, his neighbors and wicked man turn him into the butt of every joke. And as they pass him by, they laugh as Noah continues to obey God, 
trusting that when his word is tested, it will be proven true, but having to wait to be vindicated for a hundred plus years. Yet he faithfully builds. I'm sure Noah was discouraged at this time thinking, will the duplicitous, lying, boasting words of man really rule the day? Am I a fool? After all, I am not a majority. I'm a minority. I'm nothing more than a cry and a tear and a groan. I'm nothing more than just a man who trusts the faithfulness of God, but is surrounded on all sides by a cacophony of humanism. Well, in the end, which lips were cut off? Which tongue was removed? As the waters rose around that ark after the door had closed, as the fountains of the great deep sprung forth and the waters poured up and poured down, wicked men was destroyed by the authoritative, precise, never-failing, time-tested word of God. And Noah himself and his seven family members were the only ones who lived to see, to behold, and to fear the decisive judging power of God's word. God's word was passed through that test, through that furnace, and it came out the other side as true and pure and unadulterated as it always was and always will be. There were the the cities of the plains in Abraham's day. This was the area that Lot, his nephew, chose to bring his flocks to because they were fertile and they lent themselves to prosperity. And cities often spring up in such places they do today as they did then. Ports, waterways, fertile valleys. These cities, you'll recognize their names because they're a byword for evil today as they became at the hand of God, Sodom and Gomorrah. These cities were prosperous. They had kings, they had rulers, they had shops, they had commerce and merchants going on within their walls as any city does today. But they did not have the word of God to govern those things. They did not have the word of God to set in order the affairs of their land. And what happened? Well, the gross sin and godless quality of those societies began to grow more and more wicked until the only righteous man that remained was perhaps Lot and even he was no great standard or hero that you would set up as a great man of the faith. Abraham intercedes for that city and he Lot and his family, except his wife, were the only ones who lived to see the fire that rained down from heaven. That city that said there is no God, that city that was willing to freely commit adultery and sodomy under, the, under heaven and to think that they would never answer for their sin, that city who organized its affairs and would have even corrupted and even violated angels if they could have, that city was destroyed under judgment and fire from heaven. Flames and sulfur rain down, and there's nothing that remains except the testimony of Scripture. You can read their story, but you can't find the ruins or anything to speak of. You can't read their annals. They aren't celebrated today. No, Sodom and Gomorrah are a byword. They're nothing but a metaphor for evil. They're nothing but a reminder in the consciousness of those that fear the Lord that you cannot test Scripture without realizing that you are the fool and God's word will endure. David had a test of his own. He was chased by Saul, who was the king of the day. He had all the forces, all the army. There was one point in David and Saul's story where the two antagonists met and David had his opportunity to kill Saul. This happened more than once. Saul's spear was stuck in the ground right by his body as he slept. 
Saul was there with no idea that David, the man whom he was chasing, would one day be God's anointed king, was standing over him in the night hour. David's servant wanted to take that spear and run Saul through in one smooth motion. David said, no, I will not touch God's anointed, even if he wants to kill me. David said prophetically that this man will die by the hand of God or he will die in battle. But I will not be the one that takes God's anointed. I will not touch that which God says he has set in place. Saul did die in battle as David prophesied. He fell on his own sword. And in the end, as David took the throne, even though he went through times and periods where he wrote psalms of angst and anguish, anxiety and agony like this one, in the end, God's word was proven true. When the anointed king eventually took the throne, though, the, though he had been a fugitive assailed by the powers of that day, by the authority structures of his hour for, the, for most of his life up until that point in one way or another. We move forward from this story to the exile of the few faithful in Babylon. Herodotus, or I, I believe was a historian, a Greek historian during the day when the Greek travelers were going around and exploring the seven ancient wonders of the world. He found the ruins of Babylon or what remained of it at the time. This city had no parallel in many ways. Uh, I can't think of another like it. Its walls were 80 feet thick, 320 feet high, and 56 miles around. That was just the first wall. Then there was an inner wall. Then there was the hanging gardens of Babylon, the pride of the ancient world. They rose equal in height to the walls around that city. And here we find perhaps Nebuchadnezzar pacing back and forth, 320 feet in the air, looking over what he had built. And he says in as many words as you read scripture, there is no king higher than myself. He exalts himself as supreme and glorious in all his humanistic authority and power. What happened to that man? Was the word of God proven faulty and failing and inferior to the word of Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely not. He lost his reason. He lost his kingdom for a period of seven years. The hair grew. His nails grew long like talons on an animal. He lost his ability to communicate, to rule. He was reduced to an ox, grazing in his own fields, eating from his own garden on all fours until he rose from his stupor and said, there is only one king and sovereign over the affairs of men. The word of God passed through the fire in Nebuchadnezzar's day. But those walls and those gardens were no proof that humanism now ruled the day or controlled the future. A man had the power to predestine or any authority whatsoever except that which God and his providence had let him partake in for a brief moment, bringing him up a little higher. So the harder he falls, the more glorious God's power is seen, either in judgment or repentance. We keep going through history. There is a martyr that was written of in Revelation chapter 2, Antipas and Pergamum. As history records, he was put inside a brass bull. And there were megaphones in that bull. It was a statue like an idol. And they would put Christians in there, those who would become living sacrifice, the persecuted. And they would be shut in this animal, this statue, and a fire would be made underneath that bull. And literally, the body inside that idol would be cooked to death. The groans of Antipas could be heard through the temple of Zeus in that day in Pergamum. His cries that God would intervene, that would save him. 
Or perhaps his resolution that he would soon be with him in glory echoed through that temple. And I'm sure the priests that day who had devoted the worship to the emperor and to Zeus thought, we are truly king. We have destroyed and eradicated the word of God from our land. Our glorious temple will see no equal. Try to find that temple today. And you can find little more than a pillar rising here and there and the ruins of that ancient culture. Yet the word that Antipas proclaimed in Pergamum is going forth from this pulpit in thousands, maybe millions, the world over today. The word of God passed through the fire and it retained every essence of its power and value while that altar was reduced to so many ruins until it was excavated and re-put together by engineers in Germany. Very interesting. These engineers went and they excavated the ruins of this great altar of Zeus, perhaps referred to in Revelation 2 as the very throne of Satan himself, the seat of Satan, as the Revelation language describes this town, ancient Rome. Well, in the heart, certainly, of Satan, these engineers go, they excavate and they recreate, they rebuild, reconstruct the altar of Zeus in Germany. This becomes inspiration for the architects under Hitler. And he builds a Colosseum in the same spirit, actually modeled after that very altar. And he, be, and he puts himself in the stead of that brass bull and he begins to proclaim certain things. He says that he is literally God, God-like the power of the Third Reich that will be the hope of Germany, indeed the world. Hundreds of of people gather, thousands. You can see the rallies that are recorded today. Propaganda films were made in 1934, the triumph of the will in the spirit of flattering lips, great boasts and a tongue that says, we will prevail and our lips are with us. Who is master over us in that exact heart? There Hitler stood and proclaimed to the world and to his nation that there was no sovereign over him. And the searchlights trained to the zenith in the air. And the whole place was lit with the glory of humanism. Until that day when Hitler himself died on his sword as it were in battle. And his tongue was pulled from his mouth. And his lips were cut off by the decisive judging power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Proving once again if we didn't have enough proof already that humanism is bankrupt. And God's word will prevail. God's word tested time and time again is proven to be true while everything that man raises in its stead is ultimately foolish. It doesn't matter if you're Hitler, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, if you're the Caesars of ancient Rome, or if you're the government of America today, if you're the United Nations, if you're some ruling body, if you're some hope that people place their trust in, it doesn't matter who you are. If you don't build your nation, if you don't govern your affairs, if you don't purport your philosophy on the basis of God's word, you will pass through the fire and the dross will be burned off. God's word will be proven true. Your tongue will be pulled and your lips will be cut off. This is the message of Scripture. Perhaps no greater testing, perhaps no greater potential triumph for the enemy himself was proven once again, that proved once again that the Lord was true and every naysayer a fool and the ultimate test in all of history. As we begin to read in the Scriptures, we see prophecies that speak to this very event In Isaiah 53, the greatest test of all is proclaimed. And the man who would be tested and tried, the only son of man who was without sin, 
We read of him here in Isaiah 53, 7. It says of our Lord Christ, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't even have so much as a groan. He could not defend. He put aside his ability to defend himself. He did so for a reason. The enemies of the day didn't know as much at the time, but they again would be proven fools. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgments, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This, of course, speaks to the crucifixion itself. Perhaps that greatest moment in history where for the enemy, for a brief moment, he thought he could declare ultimate victory. But instead, God and his power to triumph over sin, death, and the last enemy, the grave itself, was instead declared. And Revelation 19 We see the triumphant last word when we read of Jesus Christ in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. That is our Lord. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is The word of God, the last word, the time-tested word, the one that has passed through the fire multiple times and only proven pure. And the armies of the Lord, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And that is every needy and oppressed believer who was marginalized in this life and exalted in the next, ruling and reigning in authority with our conquering king of kings. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he'll rule them with the rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And you see this, the resurrected reigning Messiah, ruling and reigning over the affairs of men to such a high degree that every naysayer, At that last day, when God decides that this historical record of His glory has reached its last chapter and He closes the book with finality, the wine presses will be filled with the blood of the arrogant, the blood of the boastful, and it will rise, the duplicitous voices, the wickedness and the guile will be stamped out in the wine presses of judgment once and for all. Every tongue will be pulled every flattery lip will be cut off and the lord our king of kings will rise to his point to the point of ultimate authority and rule ruling and reigning and seated on that authoritative throne never to be challenged by a single humanist again our lord will have the last word he has all through history 
and he will at the end of history. So let history record and let history show who has the last word and who aligns himself with the almighty word of God. Let's pray. Father, in light of our own heart condition and the condition of the world around, we see, as your word declares, a great need for repentance. Knees ought to be bruised as they fall to the ground in agony for the great sin that we've indulged among us. We have said there is no God but us. We have pushed aside the voices of truth and we have elevated the voice of man. We have co-opted and taken over and employed every device of speech and proclamation to say there is no God. And we are sinful and will be proven sinful in your wrath and fury if we do not humble ourselves and groan with the needy and the poor as our situation in our heart judges us to be and cry out that the Almighty God would find favor and on the basis of the blood of His Son ransom for Himself a people from this wicked land. O God, we pray that the word of the Lord would echo from the pulpits in this land and that as Your word is tested in this day, that it would be proven true in the voices of Your people. And we pray that the loud, triumphant, Lord, announcement for repentance would rise up, Lord, from the ashes of humanism and that people would cry out for salvation once again. For our only hope today was the same as David's only hope then, that our Almighty God might intercede on our behalf and ransom for Himself a covenant people from this wicked generation where the children of man have have rejected the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray that we would live to see flattering lips and lying tongues among us, Lord Jesus, silenced by repentance. For surely if they are not silenced by repentance, they will be certainly silenced in judgment in all that you might be glorified and seen, Lord Jesus, in heaven and on earth seated on your throne forever. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.